Welcome to The Changing World of Work, a podcast series that gives you access to some of the best business minds from around the world. My name is Claire Luby from Irish Times Training. In collaboration with Kevin Empey, founder of Work Matters, we are bringing you conversations with international guests whose cutting-edge insights will disrupt your thinking and make you reflect on today's ever-evolving world of work. Welcome to this episode of the Changing World of Work podcast, brought to you by Irish Times Training. I am your host, Kevin Empey. Amy Blankson is a globally acclaimed expert on the intersection of technology, health and happiness and is co-founder and CEO of the Digital Wellness Institute. A graduate of Harvard and Yale, Amy is the best-selling author of The Future of Happiness and is the only person to receive a Point of Light Service Award from two US presidents. She is also a member of the UN Global Happiness Council, a fellow of the World Innovation Organization and a regular contributor to Forbes magazine. Her current work focuses on how to cultivate happiness, productivity and well-being in the digital era. Amy Blankson, welcome. Amy, maybe we could start with what got you interested in the field of digital wellness and happiness at work? You know, where did that original interest and and motivation come from? I actually started as a happiness researcher. I was researching the intersection of happiness and well-being and was fascinated by the conversations that I get to speak with audiences about all over the world. Do a lot of listening. And as I'm doing Q&A with different audiences, one of the things I noticed was that the concerns on people's minds actually shifts and changes over time. So when my brother Sean Acor and I started our happiness company back in 2006, we were talking about happiness in the economy at that time. It was the recession and many people were worried about, will there be a job for me in the future? What am I doing with my life? And it led to this whole confluence of questions around what are we doing? What is our purpose and how does happiness fit into that? And then over time, what I've noticed is that those questions have shifted. The more audiences I speak to, I find that in 2014, the question became, will robots take my job and how can I be happy if they do? And uh, that seems sort of silly now when we look back because shortly thereafter in 2020, it became happiness and health in the midst of the pandemic. What do we do with our happiness? And then now that we're post-pandemic, the questions have really shifted to the future of work. Where are we heading as a society and how does our role and our individual sense of self-determination and discovery fit into this picture of the changing nature of work as we know it? And so what I find is the human behavior is actually fairly predictable. We go in these waves of fear. And I think that one of the most powerful lessons that I've learned from positive psychology has been that when we look at this topic, when we look at some of the elements that create fear for us, it really helps us to think about what we do have the capacity to change, the sense of human agency that we can do something and our behavior matters. And that actually comes back full circle to the ancient Greeks definition of optimism, which is the belief that your behavior matters. And so all of this training that I've done in the field of positive psychology really informs how we think about big problems and our happiness. And the more that we can realize we have the capacity to change the future based on our choices today, the more I think it helps us in the long run. Yeah, really 
so relevant today because, you know, we've talked in this podcast uh, about, you know, finding the certainty within the uncertainty, you know, or the clarity within the uncertainty and, and trying to sort of be steady and positive. And, you, you know, you've mentioned the changing world of work, and certainly that's a common theme on this podcast and its implications. Uh, well, what's just before we get into more detail, what's your own view on that in terms of the world of work today, you know, where we're at? You've mentioned those different inflection points, you know, um, very well since your early days. What's your view on where we are today and where do you think we're going, you know, and what's different maybe today? What feels different to other phases that you've experienced or that you've studied? I think one of the core differences is that the challenge we're facing today is not just one of a technological change, it's one of a fundamental human shifts in the sense that our world of work has sped up. So we're dealing with a greater volume of information and a greater speed of information that we as humans are not attuned for. It is dealing with the the wrestling back and forth between the fact that we now have artificial intelligence that is creeping up on our own intelligence levels. And we've got uh, technology that's working faster than sometimes our own human brains can work. And we're trying to keep up, but sometimes it's exhausting. And so what I find right now is that the challenge is not just dealing with what's in front of us, it's dealing with the societal impact of a fundamental shift in the way that we as humans work. And one of those shifts that's really interesting to me is that even since the pandemic, since 2020, the amount of time that we're spending on devices has gone up by 30%. And that sounds, you know, probably about average for what you're thinking. But I think it's worth pausing to think about what that means from a human perspective. That means that 30% of the way that we interact with colleagues and friends and family is different. 30% of the way we're doing work is different. 30% of the, the way we're either sitting or standing or moving is different. Um, and so all of those dynamics really play into how we are perceiving the world around us. And it's a big shift for us. Um, I would even liken it back to the start of the third industrial revolution. If you remember back in the early 1900s when the steam engine was created and that led to the rise of factories with assembly lines. And as more and more people began to move into cities, it created both chaos in terms of pollution, but also longer working hours and child labor. And shortly thereafter, that led into the need for uh, unions and unionization and and organizations to create rules and laws around what does it mean to work. Now, that was the shift that got us from six-day working weeks uh, down to five-day working weeks. And when you think about how the amount of hours were spent at that time, 10 plus hours a day, then we came down to the eight-hour workday. Now we're going back to this place of being in a new spot where we are working around the clock because of global time zones, because of the speed of technology, because of flexible work schedules. And the result of that is that 30% of the way that we're doing work has shifted. And that's pretty massive on the human experience. And of course, it has an impact on our happiness levels as well. Yeah, there's so much, so much in that. Amy, maybe come back to the technology piece in, in a moment and hear more about what you're doing in the Digital Wellness Institute and so on to, to deal with this at a very practical level. But you, you've mentioned earlier and, and just now too about happiness at work, you know, and happiness in general and that sense, you know, that sense of control and, and, and certainty that we talked about. 
Where are we on that debate today, do you think? I mean, the indicators, you know, again, if you listen to what you see on your device and, and everything else, your know, indicators are not good in terms of the sense of job security, engagement levels, burnout. Maybe is it different or are we just talking about it more? You know, because, you know, when, when I look at the conditions of speed of change and so on and information and digital technology and so on, um disruption generally. I, I don't see those external conditions changing anytime soon. In fact, probably only going to increase. So, and people may be thinking, well, look, I'll be happy at the weekend, or I'll be happy when I get to the holidays, or I'll be happy when, I, when I'm when i successful. I, I, I'm just interested in your take on this happiness challenge, if you like, given that the the conditions that you, you talked about that people are struggling with are, are probably not going to change. In fact, they're probably going to increase. What, what's your view? You're so right that some of these external pressures are going to be pervasive for the foreseeable future. And what I've learned through the field of positive psychology is that a lot of times we as humans push happiness over what's called the cognitive horizon, meaning that every time our brains approach what we think is going to be a success point or a moment of happiness, we get closer and closer. And then the moment arrives and we actually jump ahead to the next goalpost. So we keep pushing happiness off to the future. And this is relevant because what we're seeing happen right now is that as this dynamic shifts with the way that we are dealing with work in the current times, we keep hoping that the next benchmark is going to change everything. Oh, when things get back to normal, then I'll be happy. Oh, when we get through this merger. Oh, when we get through this quarter and, and change and all of the leadership issues start to settle down a little bit, then I'll be happy. Then things will calm down. And what I see time and time again with my clients is that it is actually the way that we go through those moments that defines us. It is not the moment that you arrive. It is the way that you're perceiving the challenges in front of you that makes all the difference. And this actually harkens back to some really interesting research that was done by Peter Salovey at Yale University, along with my brother, Sean, um, on rethinking stress. And it turns out that there's two ways that we process stress. Um, there's distress, which is all the negative harms that we feel to our bodies, the back aches, the stress, the stomach aches, the headaches, all of those things cause a threat to be perceived in our system. The other way of processing stress is use stress. It's a more positive approach to stress. And it's where you begin to think of these these challenges in front of you as challenges, not as threats. And when we do so, we actually use a different region in our brain. We shift the region that's used to our prefrontal cortex. And I know this is a lot of details here for this podcast, but I think it's so important because what's happening is that what we're learning from science is that we can actually change the region of our brain that we're using to process the exact same situation. So that one person might perceive the situation as untenable, exhausting, you know, frustrating, stress-inducing in the negative sense. And the other person might perceive this as a challenge to rise above. And the decision point here, the real inflection point became apparent in the recession of the 1980s when we found that 50% of the Fortune 1000 that exists today actually came out of that recession. So in the midst of difficult times, some companies were able to transition to thinking about the stresses they were going through as opportunities, and others fell prey to the stress and wound up falling apart. And so we have the same kind of decision point in front of us now. In the midst of the stress, what do we do with it? Can we find ways to rethink about it? 
as a challenge and get better together? Or is it something that will tear us apart because we are not yet prepared mentally, physically, or emotionally to deal with the world around us? Yeah, really, really interesting. So it's, it's not this going overboard in that and trying to see, oh, every threat is an opportunity or every challenge is, a, is a, the, plus, the positive side. It's actually to acknowledge both, right? So that it's, it is a challenge. It is a challenge and we're going to have to dig in and get through that. We're not, we're not hiding away from the fact that it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. There's also a window of, of growth or potential or opportunity there. Um, so it's recognizing both. It's having that sort of presence of mind, is it? That, you know, that, that makes you recognize both and just be, be still or steady in the moment as opposed to just driven and influenced by the, uh, by, by the stress involved. You've got it. And, you know, one of the challenges that I see happen time and again is that when you're going through a difficult time, somebody will hear this idea, oh, well, I just need to think about this as a, as a challenge and muscle my way through this situation but they've done no training up to this point. And so it's very difficult to climb that hill. What we're finding in positive psychology is that it is the daily practice of skills and habits that help you to be able to make those decisions in difficult times that is the most effective thing you can do as a leader. So even if you're not going through a difficult time, having these moments to train yourself now can help set you up for success when you hit that point. Because it's not just like a light switch you can turn on and suddenly you're more resilient. You have to work at it. It's a muscle that that develops over time. Yeah, the, the, we've talked about that here before, those areas of resilience and agility, you know, key skills for the changing world of work. And, and how do we build those in as proactive skills that we're able to draw on and practice in all times rather than just rely on them as a reactive response in a kind of more heroic way if you like um you know when the stress comes but actually we've we've spent time and good times developing those skills and and recognizing them then when they come and being able to draw on it like a muscle i guess that you're able to use when the time comes because you've been training it for a while absolutely one of my favorite stories is that the human brain actually receives 11 million bits of information every second so if you can imagine a blinding snowstorm and you're looking out into what is essentially a whiteout. There's snow everywhere. And you try to pick out 40 snowflakes in front of you. It's a really difficult task, right? That's exactly what your brain does every single second. You're getting 11 million bits of information, and it's trying to decipher out 40 bits to process because that is its maximum load. So what happens if the 40 bits of snowflakes you turn to consistently are all the stresses and the hassles mm. and the complaints? Turns out your brain has no power left with which to process the opportunities, the creative moments, the things that matter, the relationship connections. And so what happens is we, we get tired and we default to the negative snowflakes that we see in our path. But what's interesting to me is for all the people who say to me, Amy, you know, I'm not an optimist, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. I say, that's great, but you are a realist with 40 bits of information. And it turns out that there's 10 million other bits of information equally true in the same exact moment. It's just that you're paying attention to different inputs. And so if you want to change your outcomes, the very first thing we can do as humans is to begin to change the inputs that we're looking at, looking for new information. And that's where positive habits really come into play. Whether it's gratitudes, acts of kindness, journaling, meditation, those are all strategies that we use to help us to find new snowflakes and to recreate those neural connections that really help to solidify our worldview and our ability to pivot in moments that matter. Yeah, I think you've you've talked about 
which I liked it, the way you phrased it, you did give intention to our attention. You got I think it. is what, you know, which kind of, I suppose, brings us into one of the main sources, I suppose, of those millions of bits of information and those snowflakes is, is, a, is technology, isn't it? And the devices that sort of control our lives or have such a major impact in our lives. So maybe we could just look at that area in particular, you know, a deeper dive in that whole area of digital wellness, as you refer to it, and the digital influence in our lives um, and at work generally. Because I guess that's another example of an area where it's likely only to increase, right, into the future as we see greater technology influencing in how and where we work, for instance, the whole area of remote working, AI, and so on. So maybe you could just give us a sense of what is digital wellness in your mind? You know, why is it important today, particularly? And most importantly, I guess, what can we do about it if it is a problem or or is it a problem? Tell us what's your thoughts. This is such a great place to start the conversation on digital wellness, because so often we've heard of digital and we've heard of wellness. We know what both of those Mm -hmm. are, but we put them together and you think, wait, what what is digital wellness? And what I really liken it to is mental health and physical health, both of which were conversations that started in the workplace about 50 years ago. Um, First, physical health became something that employers cared about. And then about 20 years later, mental health became the topic of conversation in the workplace. And I think digital wellness is something that is now coming to the forefront of conversation for employers because they're realizing that it's not just and nice to have. It's actually an organizational imperative to deal with employees who are just burning out left and right in terms of the way that we are dealing with so much information, trying to be as productive as possible, trying to uh, trying to stay responsive to all the messages that we receive. And so when we talk about digital wellness, it's really about getting control of the use of our technology, being mindful about our use of it so that our technology is not ruling us, we're ruling our technology. And I think it comes exactly back to what you said. It's about giving intention to our attention. And a lot of times when I'm speaking with organizations about digital wellness, I I like to ask, you know, if I were to ask you on a scale of one to 10, well, one being low and 10 being high, how would you rate your digital wellness? And I either get two responses. One is I don't have any idea. Or number two is, well, pretty bad. <laughs> um, Minus I've three. I've <laughs> met anyone who's like, oh, I'm amazing at digital wellness right now, right? Like, I think this is such a new topic that we're all floundering for strategies and best practices to optimize because we're up against a new force we've never dealt with before. So that's crept up on us, right? Hasn't it, it is it's really crept of, up it's, on it's us. been creep. It's been digital creep over the last ten years, and you say maybe a, a, you know, the pandemic has caused an, an, another acceleration. You've got it. The, the pandemic really was a seismic shift in that trend. I know that when the smartphone first came out, there were conversations, of course, with pediatricians who were trying to figure out how much screen time is okay for children. And the initial the initial ruling was one hour, and then it became two hours, and then it was two hours of entertainment-related screen time. And then by the time we hit the pandemic, they said, okay, just don't let your kids be on devices all the time, right? <laughs> we just threw that question out the window. Um, but I think for adults, we have a different conversation, which is, you know, we know we're not supposed to be on devices all the time. We can inherently feel this tension that when we've been spending too long on screens, 
but we're also required to use devices for work in so many ways. And so there's no getting away from it. We know technology is ubiquitous. We know this trend is not changing anytime soon. So how do we learn to live with our tech in a way that's sustainable and that actually fuels our well-being in the long run as well and our success? Yeah, because it's, it's a whole distraction effect. I mean, you know, what's your sense on productivity generally? I mean, it, it doesn't feel like that long ago when in an office environment, when smartphones weren't maybe as prevalent, it was things like, you know, Facebook. The question was, was the organization going to allow Facebook, you know, to be, you know, to, to be banned because there was a, a suspicion that people were going on to these sites, you know, on their desktops, you know, in the office. You know, that seemed that was the sort of big issue. Now that seems to be just so feels so passe. And now, of course, we've got people at home and they've got their phones beside them and the access to technology is just total and ubiquitous, you know, so the distraction effect, is that a concern? I mean, is there data on this in terms of the productivity effect or the mental effect of distraction on our uh, mental state? Is it an issue or is it, how has this been quantified in, in, in recent years? It is definitely becoming more and more of an issue. And it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I remember when I was writing my book back in 2017, I was writing the chapter on distraction and in the midst of writing that chapter, the doorbell rang, my mom called, I got a ping on my computer, I had my phone going off, and I just laughed at myself because I thought, you know, here I am trying to focus and write about distraction and all I've got are distractions. And it's such a relatable experience because sometimes these things feel like they happen to us and that we're not in control, right? It's just no matter how much you try to create a safe space for yourself to get work done, there are things that will creep into your path, right? That's kind of Murphy's Law, right? But I do think that from a, a research perspective, there's some really interesting stats that I've had the privilege of being able to be part of collecting that I think are informing the conversation. And one of them is that 40% of individuals feel like they are making more mistakes at work due to digital distraction. And that is... A lot. When you're thinking about a surgeon who's operating on you, I don't want them to make 40% more mistakes, right? This is a big deal. Or somebody who's working on the gas lines outside of my house, or, you know, there are, there are important times when we need individuals to focus. Um, and so what we're seeing is that 89% of individuals are turning to their employers for help navigating tech life balance because they feel the struggle. 89%. Um, and 83% of those employers feel the pressure themselves and don't know what to do about it. So I think in terms of actionable steps that people can take away from this podcast today, I think the very first step is really gathering data on where your workforce is at today. Sometimes that starts with an individual assessment. Where am I at? Where are my digital habits? And am I happy with them? And then from an organizational level, it becomes how digitally well is my team or my organization? And I once heard Sir Richard Laird say, if you treasure it, you have to measure it. This is one of those topics that we're not yet measuring. Every organization I talk to has an engagement survey and those engagement surveys happen once a year. They usually have one question related to mental health. And if we're lucky, they might have a quarterly pulse survey on mental health to dig deeper. And on that survey, you might get one question about the impact of technology. But given everything that we're talking about here today, that 30% of our human experience is changing, I think we need a deeper dive right now to understand where are we starting? What are we up against? How are people processing this? 
Even the Gallup research that I've looked at has been tracking the way that employees feel cared about by their employers for years. We know that when the pandemic hit and there was a, a huge jump in the amount of investment in employee well-being, employees felt really cared about for a short time. And then there was a plummet. And then each wave of the pandemic, when employers reinvested in employee well-being, there was a short-lived little boost. And then it went back down to employees feeling less cared about than pre-pandemic. So what we know is that we spent a lot of money throwing gym memberships and meditation apps at employees, hoping that would help them. But the real underlying problem is that we're asking employees to work longer hours with more uncertainty, sometimes with less pay, and we're asking them to accomplish more in a shorter period of time. No wonder they're burning out. Plus, we're asking them to do it at all hours of the day, depending on what your flexible work schedule is. And we're asking them to, um, to really be kind of on call based on whatever might be happening in a communication level. So if we're not measuring the impact of that on employee experience, we're missing the biggest metric that might be impacting your burnout and productivity at work. So that's step one, let's measure it. And it's something that we at the Digital Wellness Institute have been doing a lot of work, working with organizations to go in and get baseline measures um, to understand where's your organization at today, and then you can benchmark from there. The second step is really offering resources to bring this conversation to the forefront. We found that when we offered a voluntary training at ATB Financial in Canada on this topic, it was voluntary. The program actually maxed out of the 100 slots they offered to do a training on this topic. Um, and within just a few hours after that training, there was a waiting list of 500 more individuals who wanted to be part of the next program. We're now into the fourth cohort with the organization all voluntary people saying, I want more training on this topic. So for us, that is, the need, right? it's huge, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I think, you know, we often think, oh, we need to create a mandatory training on this so that we can boost productivity. But if your employees are high performers or hard workers, the chances are they're already hungry for this information and they're looking for answers. So we want to give them best practices, strategies, tool tips to help them get to a place where they can actually feel like they can focus, get work done. And in the end, that makes them happier. So it's really, really, really interesting. So that's step one, research, and then the next step of education and resources. It, it feels actually the step zero, if you like, you know, the step that you also referred to, which is really critical, which maybe isn't happening, is just an open conversation on this or an acknowledgement of the elephant in the room, if you like, you know, that, that let's talk about technology and the impact on our on our lives. Because I think one of the reasons, the motives behind that voluntary uptake probably wasn't just about the interest in the area from a work perspective. It was probably just they recognized it in their their lives generally, you know, the need to, I need to probably tackle this area and, and find better habits and skills and behaviors in terms of my relationship with, with technology. And maybe that's something I can help my kids with and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's a lot of personal value from this, but that open dialogue, I think you mentioned, you know, the surveying piece, to, even, even those health and well-being surveys that have gone really increased in the last, the question is how much of those are related to technology. And, you know, as you say, there might only be one or two cursory questions. So it's having this dialogue sounds like one of the things that HR business leaders need to have. And then next question is benchmark and, the, you know, researching it and getting a sense of the data and then being able to follow through that, follow, follow up that with the resources, education. Yeah, you know, 
When we did our pilot program with ATB Financial, one of the things that we were fascinated by was that we did a, a six-week experiment. So we did a pre-test and a post-test. And for the four weeks in the middle, we did a 15-minute training through an online mm. course, one course each week, it takes 15 minutes for each week. So in the course of an hour and a half over six weeks, we were able to decrease the feeling of having to be always on, always connected by 52%. We decreased the inbox anxiety people felt when they went into their inbox in the morning and felt like, oh my gosh, I can't accomplish all of this. That went down by 50%. The amount of time people decreased their voluntary distraction on devices during the workday went down by 30 minutes. And as we looked at these results, even internally at the Institute, we said, wow, that's that's better than we ever anticipated that these courses would do. They're really amazing courses. We love mm -hmm. them, but that exceeds even our expectations. And so we went back and we started talking with some of the individuals at the organization. And what we heard loud and clear was that as good as the trainings were, that at least half of that effect was from the permission to talk about an issue that was very difficult to talk about with your employer. It was the psychological safety to say, I want to have digital boundaries, but I'm not sure how to have that conversation with my manager who is messaging me around the clock or who keeps asking me for things at 11 p.m. at night or who asks me to be up at crazy hours so I can talk to someone in a different time zone across the world. So I don't know how to manage this. And opening up that conversation actually created a, a bit of fresh air for all the employees and the managers who also have managers who wanted to have the same conversation. So it trickled up from the bottom up. And I think you're so right that there is a, a permission granting that probably happens before even measuring. It's talking about mm -hmm. it. What is it? Do you feel this? Then let's measure it. Then let's do something about it. Maybe then to move on a step then in terms of you, you've talked about the, maybe the leadership and the employer's kind of obligations and what they could do to improve this. What about the individual then? If, you know, one of the things we... We talk about a lot in this podcast being Irish Times training, you know, is, is skills, you know, at the individual level, you know, and, and uh, just interested in your, your thoughts that if if an individual was to say to you, OK, Amy, well, what what are the skills that I could employ tomorrow, you know, that maybe I haven't thought about before that would improve my own personal digital wellness? You know, what 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 are the what are those skills? Because it feels like they should be highlighted more, more clearly spelled out, uh, not just uh, in, turn, in the workplace, but, you know, in, in the, the fields of education and, 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 uh, and generally. What are those individual skills, if you like, in terms of digital wellness and health? So it's interesting that it's, it's actually a pretty similar framework to what we do in an organizational level. It starts with awareness building. So if I were to say to you, Kevin, you know, what would you say are your top five personal values? You might say, friends, family, uh, might, faith might enter the list. It could be um, success or maybe uh, for you, your value is travel. It ranges for a number of individuals I speak with, but whatever those values are, write them one through five. Now, I want you to think about the top apps that you use on your smartphone. We'll just pick on the smartphone for right now. So uh, I don't know. Go ahead and tell me, Kevin, what are some of the apps that you think you use most frequently on your devices? Well, there are probably, there are probably a couple of ones in the health area. There's probably LinkedIn. There's probably 
couple of travel ones, etc. You know, sport yeah. ones, definitely. You know, yeah. Big time. Yeah, exactly. For sure. So then what I have clients do is I'll write, if we've written down the values, we write down what apps you think you use the most. And then we'll go and we'll guesstimate how much time we're spending on each of those apps. And then the next step is to go gut check. So you actually open screen time on your phone. So if you're an iPhone Mm. user, it would be uh, screen time through settings. And if you're an Android user, you go into your settings and it's under digital well-being. And you actually do a gut check to see how close your, your assumptions were to what your actual behaviors are. And what we find is that it's interesting. Sometimes we are spot on and sometimes we are wildly off on the amount of time we think we're spending on things. You might be pleasantly surprised or you could be horrified. It'll be an interesting exercise either way. And then looking at the top five apps you are using and how much time you're spending on them, do those align with your values and your personal life goals? So if there's a disconnect there, that's the first awareness point. It says, okay, that's not where I want to be. So then the next step is setting some personal goals for yourself. What, what do you want your screen time to look like? This is the beginning of creating that ownership and human agency over your behavior. I want to spend no more than X amount of time on devices, or I really want to be spending more quality time with my young children. And so I'm going to make some, some other choices about my screen time. This is the moment where a lot of clients will say, oh, I'm going to delete Facebook altogether. No more Facebook. I'm swearing it off. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on exercising, right? That's my, that's my new focus. I would caution against this all or nothing mentality. I think that sometimes the easier way from creating a a positive sticky habit as, um, as you know, atomic habits and James Clear book once said, um, is that you're trying to make the barrier to entry for creating new habits as low as possible. So if you want to spend more time with your children, then maybe you decrease your Facebook time by 30 minutes. You don't have to delete it, just 30 more minutes in this bucket and 30 less minutes in that. This is essentially a a cost-benefit analysis or an opportunity cost moment where you're saying, I want to transition how I'm doing with my time. And now I'm gonna use this baseline metric from my phone to see a week from now, am I doing what I said I wanted to do? And are there some boundaries that I need to set up for myself to help to reach those goals? So that might mean not having devices at the dinner table, or it could mean not having devices in meetings if you're thinking about the workplace. I see a lot of workplaces where people have their phone and the laptop, sometimes an iPad and a screen where they're watching colleagues on Zoom. So of course there's some digital distraction. If we wanna focus more, we need to reduce some distractions. So we call those digital boundaries or guardrails. So that's a good second step. The third step would be fending off guilt um, that comes with this conversation and really just focusing on getting in control of your tech use. I know that when you start seeing these numbers and the comparisons, everybody says, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I feel horrible. Oh, this is, this is awful. It's natural. But I think if you stay in that place of guilt, it doesn't actually help you move forward. What you really want is to set the goalposts that are going to work for you to help move you to who you want to be. And that's the beginning. And, and really the, um, the expression of positive psychology and action is taking control of your life um, by making better decisions. Yeah, I could really see your, your application of positive psychology into the application of 
digital wellness. You can really see that. I think that point you make about alignment of things that are important to us with our technology, with our relationship with technology is a really interesting one, right? So one of the apps I didn't even mention was news apps, right? But news apps, you know, people are going on to news, but even though we know 80% of the news is, is negative. And what's that doing in terms of, you know, my neurochemicals and uh, my neurochemistry? But maybe there's some things that are really important to me that I'm not actually utilizing technology. So I'm I'm actually not utilizing some positive um, apps that are maybe out there that would serve my values more. But I tend to be using things that are not serving my values. So I think that's a really interesting, that alignment check as well as a usage check, I think is really interesting and in putting those two things together. Amy, really, really interesting. And I love the way you have fused these thoughts of, you know, just general well-being together and, and, you know, bringing it up to date in terms of the digital agenda and where that's going and how we can kind of apply positive tips and practices rather than the fear factor and rather than the all of that. Really, really helpful. And um, if I was to ask you just to finish, you know, one thing, you know, one thing for the future, uh, Amy, what, what are you most hopeful about in terms of the next phase of of work what would what would great look like what would you be most hopeful about i am actually very hopeful about ai which you would find surprising i'm guessing based on the fact that i focus a lot on digital wellness but i think there's elements that we're seeing where ai can help us to boost creativity and it can help us to work more efficiently it's not a panacea for all things it can come with a lot of problems but I do have a lot of hope that if we are mindful and as we're thinking about the ethics of bringing AI forth, that this conversation around what kind of world we want to create is beginning to gather more steam. One of the things I often say, though, is that when we think about the future, we can use that same strategy that we talked about earlier about rethinking stress transitioning stress from being a threat to a challenge by thinking about what kind of actions we can take to create the kind of future we want to see. Because the yeah. the temptation is to fall into a place of fear and get stuck. And we know that fear is a powerful motivator, fear of what could happen, fear of what is happening. But at the end of the day, I think hope is a better motivator. Hope that we can make the world a better place. Hope that we can create policies and boundaries and a different work experience that will take everything we've learned about happiness and human experience in work, at home, in our lives, and do something better with it. With all these tools we have at our disposal, I am hopeful that we can get better and to create a different narrative that will make the future of work more hopeful and optimistic for all. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great place to finish, Amy. And thank you so much for joining us today and the very best of luck to you and your, your colleagues and your ongoing work with the Digital Wellness Institute. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for listening to the Changing World of Work podcast. Join us next time as we speak to experts about the trends, innovations and developments affecting workers and our workplaces.